Hi everyone and welcome to the show. This is episode number 86 of Pop Culturally Deprived and today we're going to be talking about flatliners on your Are You That Tragically Competitive podcast. I'm Mandy Kay. And I'm Matthew Vose. And this week we are joined by writer Daniel Swenson, a gent who, in his own words, grew up on a steady diet of cheap beef flicks and heroic fantasy, the kind that came in battered paperbacks with yellow edging and creased spines. He's written everything from game books to cell phone ads to fiction of all genres. And Daniel is also the co-author of the Empire City Adventures with PCD alum Joshua Unruh. So welcome to the show, Daniel. Thank you very much for having me. I'm really glad you had that handy intro all written out so I could just steal it. It's fantastic. Yes, finally, it serves a purpose. <laughs> Did we just grab it off your Wikipedia page? Is that the plan? <laughs> exactly. Um, so, Daniel, when I posted on Twitter about Flatliners a couple months back, you immediately jumped in and said that you unironically love this movie. So yes. why is this a movie one that you're so fond of and that you wanted to come talk about? Um, well, when I was growing up, my, like my family was very religious, very conservative, and we didn't have a wide library of movies to choose from. And a lot of the stuff that we did have was stuff that I absolutely was not interested in, just like feel good family film type stuff. Um, and usually the only exposure I got to the stuff I really wanted to see was like waiting until I was by myself in the house and like finding something on cable, you know, like alien or the exorcist or something like that. Um, and then after I moved out of the house, this was one of the first movies that I saw just sort of on my own where I wasn't beholden to anyone else's uh, choices or tastes. Mm-hmm. And I just really fell in love with the photography and the uh, the idea of the movie, even though like I'll, you know, I, I won't say that this movie is a classic by any means. <laughs> um, it has some really glaring flaws, but it's really pretty. And I love that it's kind of oddball. And uh, make some choices that you don't really see a lot in in blockbuster films. Right. So, so basically, you saw this movie and it just kind of blew your mind. Kinda, yeah. Um, it's been really amusing to me since then because at the time I wasn't familiar at all with Joel Schumacher, um, and this was, of course, before like Batman Forever and Batman and Robin came out. And so when I saw this, I was thought to myself, wow, this Jewel Schumacher is really going places. Like <laughs> when he matures, he's going to be amazing. And uh, uh, I don't think that ever happened. I don't think so. What? He never matured, <laughs> you mean? <laughs> I don't want to speak for him, but yeah, I mean, just judging by what we see on the screen. So oh, do, do we need to ask this then, Mandy? How come you've never seen this? Well, I mean, it was a lot of the reason, same reasons as Daniel. It's why the show exists, because I never saw anything when I was younger. Um, but honestly, I didn't know this movie existed. Um, I think I just discovered it like a couple months ago, which is when I tweeted about it, because I realized there was a movie from the 90s that had Kevin Bacon, Julia Roberts, and Kiefer Sutherland in it. And my immediate thought was, why have I never seen this? Hmm. Um, so, Yeah. Okay, we'll find out if we can answer that later. <laughs> um, some history on this. Uh, Flatliners is a 1990 psychological thriller. It's directed by Joel Schumacher and features an all-star cast of Keith Sutherland, Julia Roberts, Oliver Platt, William Baldwin, and Kevin Bacon. 
The film received mixed reactions on release. Critics particularly noted the atmosphere and originality of the story, but they were disappointed the film itself didn't discuss its subject matter in greater depth and ended up as a possible ghost story in lieu of something more interesting. The film did modest returns at the box office. It earned over $61 million on a $28 million budget. There was a remake of the film produced in 2017 that starred Ellen Page. And Kiefer Sutherland is also in it. Uh. Yeah, you see, that put me off because there's a whole thing of, <laughs> oh, yeah, resuming his character and it's actually kind of a continuation. And then it turns out, no, it is just right. Kiefer Sutherland as another character. Yeah, yeah. I okay. That. What a waste. So they lied in the build up to the film. Cool, 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 cool. Tisk. <laughs> Yeah. Now, one thing you didn't mention is that this movie was actually nominated for an Oscar. Was it? Yeah, for sound design. Okay. It lost out <laughs> to Hunt for Red October, if I recall correctly. Oh, you just sound so incredulous, Matthew. <laughs> <laughs> one of the big Oscars. Oh, I missed it. <laughs> an Oscar is an Oscar. I don't think you have an Oscar. Prove it. <laughs> <laughs> Although, actually, I think you have a DVD called Oscar. Yes, that's good enough. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, if you, like me, have never seen this movie, it is about five medical students who take turns flatlining or dying and being revived in order to see if there is really anything after death. Which sounds intriguing. I mean, it's a good pitch. Mm. It is. Yeah, very Um, interesting setup. Now, we do like to tell folks how we watched it so that if it's available and other people want to watch it, they can. Um, in the States, it is available for rent on Amazon, but it's also on the Stars channel. So, hello, free seven-day trial. <laughs> um, over here, despite Sky just having gotten the remake, um, it is not available on any digital media. So, I ended up finding it in a DVD shop. Yeah, I saw it in the original theatrical run, and I think uh, I think it was actually one of the first DVDs I ever bought. So I've had my copy for a while. That's awesome. That, it's kind of one. That... Of, it's kind of one of those ancient copies that has like, you know, uh, a bunch of text in it. You know, like like uh, liner notes and things. Like mm-hmm. they really went to the mat for the the materials, like the reading materials, which not a lot of DVDs do anymore. Yeah. Hmm just means you are a true super fan that's right (laughs) so uh, i mentioned about the all-star cast and the director mandy do you have any experience of them uh some of them uh i i joel schumacher's name sounded familiar and i looked him up and yeah i don't know why his name sounded familiar um (laughs) i have seen a time to kill and phantom of the opera which he directed but i never used to pay attention to who directors were so i wouldn't have known um, Julia Roberts is the most well-known of this movie to me. Um, I've obviously seen all of her rom-coms from the 90s and kind of almost everything else. I've seen way more of her stuff than not. Um, there are very few things of hers that I haven't seen. Um, yeah, she was in two movies that year. She was in Pretty Woman that same year, I think. Mm. Yeah, I was thinking that it was somewhere around then that Pretty Woman had to have come out and there's such different movies. So weird. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. A couple um, years after this, the film The Player comes out, uh, and that's about people making movies. And there is a recurring gag of everyone pitching, Oh, I, I think there should be a young star in this, someone like Julia Roberts. And it's, it's either <laughs> Julia Roberts or Bruce Willis. So this is clearly that point they were both hitting it big. Right. 
Mm. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, Kiefer Sutherland, I've seen A Few Good Men, A Time to Kill. Uh, I know he was in the show 24, even though I've never seen it. So he's one of those guys that I'm just more culturally aware of than with actual experience of him. And of course, I know that he's Donald Sutherland's son, obviously. <laughs> um, Kevin Bacon, kind of the same thing. Uh, Footloose is probably the thing that he's most well known for for me. And of course, everybody plays Six Degrees from Kevin Bacon, which is a thing, um, which probably means I should have seen more of his stuff than I have, but I haven't. Um, Apollo 13, he was also in A Few Good Men. Um, he did star in a serial killer TV show called The Following, but I actually never finished that one. Okay. Hmm. Yeah. And then William Baldwin, he's just a Baldwin. Like, you look at him and you know he's a Baldwin. Interchangeable. You don't know which one, but he's a Baldwin. Among the, among the lesser Baldwins. <laughs> right. And Oliver Platt? I forgot to look him up. I recognized him. I know I've seen him in stuff. Three Musketeers, The West Wing. The West Wing. That's the his West thing, yeah. The West Wing. Yeah. That's it. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I haven't seen I, Three Musketeers, so. I, I'd feel bad leaving him off. <laughs> okay. Um, well, I mean, I recognized his face, so that's something. <laughs> I'm sure I've seen your face before somewhere. Um, <laughs> did you have any expectations for this? Okay. So let me tell you what I thought this movie was about. I thought this movie was about adrenaline junkies who just liked to die and get revived. <laughs> that makes for a very different yeah. movie than the movie that yeah. we got. <laughs> no, I mean, based on the synopsis, that's fair, you know? Yeah. Um, I, I honestly don't know why I thought it was just more, like, action instead of having this, like, psychological paranormal aspect to it. Um, but I didn't expect that at all. I didn't expect the weird gothic setting. I didn't expect, like, pseudo-ghosts. It was weird. <laughs> pseudo-ghosts. Yeah. So I expected a very different movie than what I got. Okay. Um, sure. So the movie you actually got, did you enjoy it? Unfortunately, not really. Okay. It was just kind of confusing, and it... It raised more questions than it answered. Is that because it was so different than what you expected? I don't think so. Because I think there is a version of this movie that could be done really, really well. I mean, okay. it's it's an interesting premise. Um, mm. I ended up feeling like this was a film school project. It was very, very flashy. It had really creative cinematography camera angles, color, and things like that. And it kind of felt like more attention was paid to the aesthetic of the film than the content of the film. Okay. And it was directed by Joel Schumacher. Interesting. Have you seen those I'm Batman films? We didn't mention them. But... I, I have not, no. Okay. So I'm guessing this is a theme with him? Yeah. He, he makes very pretty movies that... <laughs> I think some would argue lack substance. I mean, <laughs> okay. I, I, I would like, this is the only film of his that I really enjoy. Okay. Um, you know, and, and tend to revisit like, uh, like I watched the Batman movies and that was it for me and Joel Schumacher, I think pretty much forever. I don't, I don't know that I've ever sought out another film of his okay. after that. 
Well, it's interesting when I look at the, the two movies that I'm familiar with that he directed, A Time to Kill and Phantom of the Opera, both completely different from each other and completely different from this movie. And I would argue mm-hmm. that A Time to Kill is full of substance and doesn't have a lot of the weird, like, dreamlike aesthetic that we got from <clears> this. <throat> Although Phantom does have a lot of that kind of flashy stuff, too. Oh, Absolutely. Well, he's. I think he does a lot of you know, like work for hire stuff. Like a, he did, uh, he did Dying Young with Julia Roberts, and I guess he said that he was not the right choice for that movie, but he did it as a personal favor to her because oh. he enjoyed working with her on Flatliners. Okay. Um, so I don't know if he tends to pick things that he's not a great fit for. I mean, I think certainly people would say that about the Batman movies, um, <laughs> but I don't know. Okay. Okay, can we um, dig into what you either would have improved or detracted from it? Because I know we'll come back around to what you particularly enjoyed. Um, Is it the stories? Is it just the concept going getting a bit weird? Was it that aesthetic? No, I like the concept. And I think, honestly, the aesthetic fit the concept. It's just they didn't do enough to elevate the content to meet that aesthetic. I think I wanted more of Nelson's motivation other than I'm an awesome medical student and I can play God and be amazing and you guys suck. You know, I wanted more from him. Um, I, I wanted kind of, I wanted to dig deeper into what was actually happening instead of, these people are experiencing hallucinations and they're keeping it a secret from each other. And so we see it, but nobody else does. Hmm. And then all of a sudden it comes to a head and they realize, Oh, we have to get redemption. You know, I, I feel like they, they stayed too broad and I wanted specifics is really what it is. Like I wanted to know more about why Kevin Bacon's character did what he did. And then I wanted it to actually have an impact. I mean, him saying, I'm sorry to a woman who's grown with her own family and is happy suddenly fixes these weird hallucinations. Like where did they come from? What was causing them? Because it clearly wasn't manifesting from ill will that she still had towards him. Right. Um, And and so I, there's just so many questions and I wish that they could have at least gone another layer deep because they just scratched the surface for everybody Mm. And then, like, why was Oliver Platt's character even in it? He didn't do anything. <laughs> and honestly, Joe didn't do anything either. And he we, he didn't even get a redemption arc for him. We just got to see him being a really terrible person. Yeah, I think I might have seen it from one of the critics, maybe. One of the lines about the the reception for it. And it was something like, we kind of go through the same thing with each of them. Like, oh, they have sins of the mm-hmm. past. And it's the the same thing each of them goes through. And we don't need to see it each time. If we're going to spend time on something, like you say, set up the motivations a bit more, dig into it a bit more. Yeah. 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 I think there were just too many of them. Hmm. You know, and so we get the same thing, even though it was all slightly different. I mean, Julia Roberts and Kiefer's were the same. They both thought that they were responsible for someone's death. And granted, in, in Nelson's case, he was. But it was literally the same thing. You know, they both were feeling these sins of the past because they thought they killed somebody. Mm. Um, 
and it was just repetitive, I think. And and is it? You just made me think. There's almost a mixed message there of, like, if if all the stories were about these things they'd done in their past that were coming back to haunt them, fine. But actually, hers isn't, and his is a thing he's doing in the present um, with videotapes. Right. So it's not even like there is one bad thing that's coming back to haunt each person individually. It's just random stuff they think about. So here's a question. (laughs) Um, And Daniel, since you like this movie so much, maybe you have some insight onto this. Sure. What is this movie trying to tell us? Like specifically, I I feel like it's trying to say something about death, but I can't figure out what it is since the message doesn't seem to be consistent from character to character. Sure. Okay. Well, uh, the short version of what I think about what this movie is saying is death is about how we live um, and the answer to the question of death like, as, is how do we live going forward, knowing that our loved ones die, knowing that, uh, that their, their lives are not complete when they go, knowing that there are, these, there are always going to be these unanswered questions about the people in our lives who pass away. Um, and what we do about that uh, as we move forward, like how we let death change us. Um, and I, I don't think that that's very explicit, like on the screen, mm-hmm. but where I get that from is, is the fact that all these characters are kind of terrible in a lot of ways. They're kind of all broken. Um you know, like Nelson has this terrible runaway ego and he pushes everyone away and he kind of believes himself to be, I think, uh, at the heart beyond any kind of redemption. And uh, Joe, you know, he, I have I have this whole theory about his near-death experience, which is, of course, this big, like, Victoria's Secret erotic montage that he has. <laughs> um, and I think that, that he may have just gotten so fixated on female attention that he he tanks the only actual relationship that he has like he can't make it work um even though he really values it or at least thinks that he does he can't treat it with any trust and honor and so he he blows it up um and you know rachel blames herself for for her father's suicide um and i i still haven't really been able to to crack what Libratio's thing is um, other than he just has this moment of cruelty in his past that he really wants to atone for. Um, But I think they all come out with a better idea of how to live their lives um, from this experience that they have. That's interesting. I'm not sure that I came out of the movie feeling like they were changed enough to change their lives but no i mean i don't yeah i think um, i think like a denim on of some kind would have really helped yeah i think um, we we just needed a little bit more of something because i think really what this movie feels like is a tiny little snapshot of a specific moment and that's all we get you know we don't get the motivations we don't get the consequences we don't get anything else And I think that frustrates me when I go into a story or into another universe, because when I'm dropped in somewhere unfamiliar, 
I need information to understand what I'm experiencing. And I feel like I didn't get that information here. Sure. I feel like I should mention that I, in general, I really tend to love films that kind of drop questions in my lap and then don't answer them. Okay. Like, <laughs> so there have been many times where I've watched a movie with somebody and, and like I, I'm really excited by this incredibly ambiguous ending that doesn't wrap anything up. And then I look over and the person I'm watching it with is really mad, you know? <laughs> okay. Uh, and I'm like, no, it was great. They just left everything up in the air, you know? Yeah. That's I, the I kind of thing I enjoy. I can appreciate that sometimes, especially when I'm invested in the characters, because then that open-endedness kind of gives me the ability to direct the rest of the movie in my head. You know, it, mm -hmm. it lets me decide where it goes. But but when I don't have enough information to do that, that's when it really frustrates me. And that's, sure. that's where I ended up, I think, with this one is... I just don't have enough information to know, like, do they continue their studies with medical school? Like, do they go on to become <laughs> doctors? Like, after this experience, that's a tough one. Admittedly, I really want to know that, too, because it seems like they should all be expelled. Um, right. Because they're, you know, they're really abusing the privileges that they have. But but the thing that I find interesting is that uh, I think kind of buried in that in the movie is... Uh, the reason why they're all getting into it in the first place. Like I would have liked maybe a little more exposition with Nelson, like why he's so excited about, you know, uh, finding out what's beyond death. And I think it's kind of buried in there that he wants to reach for this, this atonement for this thing that he did in the past, but it's never brought to the surface. Like he never says it. Mm -hmm. It's just very obliquely implied in the movie. And I think that I, I agree with you. I think that's kind of where the movie frequently falls short is I think sometimes they should just go ahead and, and put that stuff on the page, put it on the screen mm -hmm. and, and have some people declare their intent, you know. Yeah, but they spent too much time making it pretty. Oh, yes. True. <laughs> um, okay. Speaking of the way that it looks, can you please tell me when and where this movie is set? Because I cannot <laughs> figure it out. I know that... It was shot in Chicago, <laughs> mm -hmm. um, but this does not feel like Chicago, and this does not feel no. like a modern hospital, for sure. It looks like a... Honestly, I kind of felt like it was taking place somewhere like Russia <laughs> a little bit, <laughs> like around World War II, <laughs> until we saw some of the stuff like... Her dad was a Vietnam vet. It's like, okay, that doesn't really fit. It's like nothing fit together, and I was so confused. Yeah, I mean that's granted. That's one of the things that I really love about it is that it doesn't seem to be set anywhere terrestrial. Like it's just the whole thing just seems like it's it's just kind of plucked out of time and space and takes place in its own weird little universe. Mm -hmm. Like there's all this religious imagery everywhere. Everything's yes. kind of of ruined and decadent. Like they're 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 doing their experiments in a church. This this ruined church with all this, you know, plastic is covering everything and there's all of this, you know, gothic artwork and there's uh, the, the construction lights, you know, warning people off um, and everything's kind of empty and lonely like and retro, like even the, the restaurant, um, you know, I mean, the restaurant has the most incredible lighting of any restaurant I've ever seen in my life. Like, I really want to go there. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um 
but no, I don't, I don't know. I don't know where it's at. I, th- I feel like that was a deliberate choice on their part. Like they were just trying to make like something that felt like a modern Gothic almost. Cause I feel mm. like this movie, if they had set this in the 19th century, you know, and done a kind of a reverse Frankenstein riff, um, I think it almost would have sold better because it has all of those gothic sensibilities as everyone's haunted by their past, which is kind of dark, but not really that serious, right? you know? Um, and, uh, and there's, you know, like all the dramatic lighting and, and so forth. I think, I think it would have been a kind of amazing as a, as a 19th, within, in a 19th century setting. Right. Definitely. Uh, I have, I have kind of a, a theory about the use of color in the movie. If you want to hear about that. Sure. Mm. So uh, I was watching again last night, and of course, you know, we all know that's that it's a very pretty movie. But one of the things I noticed um, in my recent rewatch was that uh, they use color to like heavily to illustrate or foreshadow scenes, um, like all of the uh, hallucinations are this cold blue color. I'll I'll say almost all the hallucinations because I'll get to that in a second. But like when people are just running around doing things, everything's like very warm. It's orange. Like there's all these these solar tones everywhere or it's kind of drab and and gray. But when someone's having a hallucination, most notably Nelson uh, and also Joe, like everything turns very cold and blue, like sometimes just on a dime. Like that's how you tell hmm. you're in trouble because he, he turns a corner, you know, and all of a sudden everything is is blue. Um, and there's a great scene where he's down in the tunnels and it's like this uh, this cold blue with these warm orange uh, lights along the walls that are kind of transitioning him into this this either this other world or this hallucination that he's having. Um, and like now that's really common because we have digital color correction and everybody does that. Like the, the teal and orange just looks really good on screen. So everyone does it, but it wasn't as common. I don't think in 1990 for people to use color that heavily. Um, but one of the other things I noticed is that, uh, of all the characters, Rachel's color palette is actually the reverse of that. Like, uh, she walks when she's walking around by herself. It's cold blue all the time, and then when she encounters her like the ghost or hallucination of her father, it turns this deep red until she reconciles with him, and then it turns into this gold. And there are a lot of moments in this movie where they use that they use color to illustrate character. I think. Um, like there's a there's a scene and I may you know I'll admit that I may be reading too much into this because I'm and as you say a super fan but um there's this there's the bit where Nelson is about to to truly kill himself and he's talking on the phone with Rachel and he seems to have come to this kind of realization he says you know everything that we do matters whereas before in in the movie he's been this kind of nihilistic this is my idea you're all just tourists kind of a thing um but he calls her and he says you know I'm sorry that for what I've done to you. And there's, while he's talking, there's this gold light pulsing behind him every time he speaks. Hmm. Um, and I, I think that they, that. yeah, well, I mean, it's, it's pretty buried. Like I, I only saw it cause I was actively looking for this stuff in my rewatch. Um, 
And I think they do a lot of that kind of symbolism with color. Um, like uh, Winnie Hicks's farm is all really golden and warm, which is something that you generally only see when someone's kind of making, going through some kind of act of redemption like Rachel does with the, the vision of her father and stuff like that. So I think visually there's a lot more going on uh, with it than just, than just being, you know, uh, flashy. Okay. Hmm. That's cool. interesting. I really, I mean, I noticed like the red and the blue um, yeah. more straight, strongly the red, just because it was so different than everything else. The cold blue wasn't much different from the drab gray um, right. for Nelson. Um, but I did notice every time the red came up. So I got some of it on my first watch. I just, I didn't catch the other stuff. I think that's fascinating. Yeah, I, I almost kind of want to watch it another time now to, to kind of really dig into how they use color. Because I had this, I had kind of a whole bonkers theory about like what it means for people and why it's different for Rachel than for anyone else. Like, I think like my, and again, this is kind of like my nutball theory, <laughs> is that like Rachel kind of lives in, like she lives with her father's death all the time. So she's kind of walking around in that blue color palette in her daily life all the time. Um, but she wants to she wants to fix it. She wants to reconcile it. Um, and so when it manifests, it comes up as this as this red or orange color. Whereas Nelson, um, I think do, doesn't think he deserves redemption and actively pushes it away. So he he interprets that as literally as an attack. You know, like it's literally tearing him apart. Like if you if you think about like the uh, these visions, these hallucinations as being manifestations of these characters' traumas, you know, like I think Rachel kind of want to move. She wants to move toward it. She's scared because she doesn't want to face her own guilt, but she she wants to fix it. And Nelson doesn't want to fix. He, I feel like he'd rather destroy himself than fix it. And that's I think that's all reflected in the visuals. Yeah, interesting. I like it. Thanks. <laughs> I feel like the the visions that they have don't really make sense except as reflections of the characters' traumas. Like cuz they're not ghosts because Winnie Hicks isn't dead. Right. You know, and neither are the, all of the women that Joe's sleeping with. So really all they are is just, you know, reflections of themselves that have been brought back mm -hmm. from their near-death experience. And to me that's the only explanation that makes any sense. Yeah, I was I was wondering about that. I couldn't quite figure it out, especially since Nelson was physically being harmed. Yeah. And, and so I was really confused. But then at the scene in um, the truck outside of Winnie's, um, mm -hmm. when Kevin Bacon gets back to the truck and he looks in and we see it from his perspective, you can't see Billy Mahoney. Like there's nobody right. actually there. It's all in Nelson's head. And so that brought up a really interesting question. Is Nelson hurting himself during these hallucinations? Is that why he's getting injured? Yeah, I think he absolutely was. Mm. I mean, I think, you know, he's just literally beating the crap out of himself for something that he did wrong, mm -hmm. which is about the most accurate metaphor for trauma I can think of. Right. And I think that for me is the point at which I go, oh, that could have been a, a more interesting reveal, perhaps. just because it is quite interesting like okay he's actually being physically harmed here there is more going on than possibly we can see and it, it is a bit more paranormal and then it's like oh no he's hitting himself 
And I, I almost wish it was more uh, the the ghost, the sin that was coming back to haunt him was scaring him so much he fell down the stairs or stepped in front of a cyclist or a car. Or, you know, the, yeah. the impact of that thing was causing him to do it. So you still get some of that ambiguity, but it's not, no, he punched himself across the face and split his eye open, but... <laughs> But didn't realise that was why his fist was hurting as well. Um, I, I just feel like that could have been done a, a little bit better to add some of that. I think they might have changed it for the remake. Because I did read something about like there's an implication of her being pushed off a fire escape. But also she yeah. falls. So, um, it, yeah, the idea of him, like, when he gets kind of stabbed with the, the tool in the back of the thing. Like, is he just pushing that into his shoulder? Because yeah. that's really strange. Yeah, I have to admit that that for me, I I love a lot of the baffling imagery in in this movie, and maybe that's just my personality. Mm-hmm. Like, I love the the you know, like the dog, the injured dog, because it's so weird. Like, you know, like the first time I saw it, I was like, "Why is this happening? I do not understand at all." <laughs> that was my exact reaction. I think in all caps, I started like shouting in my thoughts, "Doc, why is there a hurt dog in this movie?" Yeah. <laughs> oh, it was um, awful. And then, um, and I think you know, uh, the the girl swearing on the train, like people were people were laughing in disbelief in the theater when that came mm-hmm. up. Like she just comes up and just this, this tornado of mm. darkly scatological profanity. It's 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 weird and hilarious, and I don't know, kind of unsettling to me at the at the same time because it's like why, <laughs> you know. Yeah. Um, but I love that because I love that the imagery that comes back from their near-death experiences is kind of just mystifying mm. at first until they dig into their own emotions about it. They don't even know what they're experiencing. Are we supposed to infer that the reason Winnie's character does that is because those were the things that were said to her? I guess yeah. so, yeah. I, that's the way I take it, but I feel like, again, we could have... Because we, we even get flashbacks. Like, there is an opportunity for them to have leaned into it and gone, ah, oh, I can see the reversal going on here, and he is being literally haunted. Yeah. Uh, by his own words. Yeah. Okay. I think... So you you feel it would have been stronger just, like, as a straight-up ghost story rather than kind of a psychological drama. Yeah, I think... So, like you, I like ambiguity at the end of a thing where you get to make your own mind up, but they never have the discussion to pose the question. It is yeah, just, we see true. these things haunting them, and then they ask forgiveness, and they are forgiven, and, and we move on. <laughs> but there's never a, but what was it that was causing me to do this? What was, you know, is there something there? What do we experience? Why is yours different from mine? Because yeah. there are so many things we could take as a discussion. Nothing, no one thing comes out as yes. That's the question it is posing. Yeah, that's true. Um, and I would like I to feel just it have focused of, in. Yeah, yeah, I, I do feel it falls into that trap of that so many writers fall into. Of well, if the characters just withhold information and lie to each other, we can keep <laughs> this going. You know, we can feel yeah. this for much longer if no one just shares what they're <laughs> feeling or doing. And that, that admittedly, is a big shortcoming in that mm. movie. And the film explicitly calls that out. Like, it does, <laughs> you yeah. did not let us make a choice. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, well, so my next question was going to be, what do you think about Nelson 
withholding that information and knowing that he's being haunted and still letting other people go through this without telling them. Are you asking me or? Either one. I mean, is oh, it okay. just a, is it, I mean, cause you were just saying it's, it's a plot point. It's to drive the plot forward. So does it matter? Does it really make Nelson a terrible person? Like I think it does, or are we just supposed to ignore it? No, I mean, I think, I think Nelson is kind of a terrible person. And he has kind of a chance to be a little less terrible at the end. But overall, he is just the worst, mm-hmm. you know, like, you know, I because, because, you know, we're talking about, like, why aren't we having this conversation about what's going on? Um, like, they almost like they they cruise by it in the restaurant, you know, they're they just they just touch on it a little because. You know, uh, Joe is recalling, you know, his experience, which he seems to think is really positive. And it's like, it almost seems like it's on the the cusp of changing him a little. And Steckle's like, this could be a whole thing. This could be a movement. This could be, you know, something that could really change the world. And then Nelson's just sitting back saying, yeah, it was my idea, though. Right. You know, Mm -hmm. um, don't forget that. Don't forget that I'm in charge, you know. And then he tries to, like, he wants to go again. Um. And, you know, is, is like heading off Rachel and then there's a big falling out between all of them and so on. But, I mean, I don't think he does it because he deliberately wants to be terrible. I think he does it because he really hates himself for what he did to Billy Mahoney in the movie. And, um, you know, so that that causes him to push everyone away. And again, I don't, I know that's just my sort of headcanon about the character. I don't think that that's really on the screen that much. Okay. Yeah, I, I, again, I almost wish there was a scene where they're like, "Wait, why didn't you tell me?" Well, because you didn't tell me. Well, uh, but what were you thinking about not telling me? And, and again, dig into why they didn't. Because there probably are really good reasons. Like, I thought I was the only one, and this is why it scared me. And oh yeah, sure. We don't get that. I wonder if it's just uh, maybe they had notes from the the studio to give each of the like main actors a, ch- a chance to play a big scene and do the thing that they, they, uh, <laughs> they're good at doing in films. Right. I do think there's some, uh, almost it, it's staying in a very sort of Western Christian way. The idea that they've brought their sins back, but all they need to do is ask for forgiveness. That thing of, yeah, you know, of all of God's creatures, really we just need Christian. to ask for it. Yeah. yeah. Um, and we are forgiven and we can move on. I don't think yeah. they do this in any remake or anything, but there is an interesting thing of seeing something that's not in that or challenging their faith and their belief and like, oh, I I, I saw a different God. <laughs> that religion's right. <laughs> yeah, that that religion's wrong. Amazing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I would have been so on board for that. Like they just, you know, they go out there and it's mm. some God they've never met. Yeah. Um, I got reincarnated into an eagle and then I came back. It was weird. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, the only thing we get is we get uh, Labratio, who's the, the outspoken atheist at the end. He's he's calling out to God. He's saying, I'm sorry we stepped on your territory, God. You know, like, like was that, that's always kind of, I don't want to say annoyed me, but it's like a little frustrating because it's like, okay, was he an atheist the whole time or did this really change him? And like, suddenly he has some kind of faith because of what he went through. It isn't, they don't really dig into it. Mm. Uh, As you say, they just kind of like let it lay there and you have to draw your own conclusions. And uh, even after all these years, I don't really know what conclusion to draw from that. If he was just saying 
loudly that he and often that he was an atheist to you know hide his insecurities about his own faith maybe or you know i don't know i don't know if that if that experience transformed him as a character enough for him to be apologizing sincerely to god at the end i don't think it should have but that's just me i mean because the experience that he had yes okay so it does show that there's something like it's not just nothing but we don't know what Mm -hmm. that something is especially since it's different for every person we don't know the source of that something and so i think it should have made him question things but i don't know that it would have immediately made him run and start talking to god like he (laughs) did although to be fair in this society in in american culture it is just it's almost just a figure of speech to talk to god you know you say god and you call out to god when you're not actually doing those things like you say good lord or um i can't even think right now my brain (laughs) is just not working but there are so (laughs) many just expressions in our speech that use that phrasing Hmm. That it would be very easy, even as a self-pronounced atheist, to come back and draw on those things without actually meaning those things. Yeah, um, true. And, and so it's interesting that the movie doesn't specify really because it does it does let you interpret that in many different ways. It could be, yes, he is changed now because he can't be an atheist if there's something after death. Or it could just be he's really shaken up and doesn't really know what to do and is just talking yeah yeah so i have one last question before we start talking about the things that we did like okay i mean you've already talked a lot about the things that you did (laughs) but i know you have more um why do you think that we only get to see redemption for rachel david nelson and not for joe (sighs) yeah um well there's a big part of me that feels like joe doesn't reserve deserve (laughs) redemption you know, um, yeah. because right what he does you. is, yeah, what he does is really terrible. And like, um, you know, he, de- he never really shows a lot of remorse. I mean, he, he's obviously sad when his fiance rightfully dumps him for, mm-hmm. for recording all these women that he's having sex with. And he's like, Oh, it's too bad. But then he, then he just kind of snaps back and I never really, there's never a moment where Joe is like, I'm, I feel really horrible because my fiance dumped me. He just kind of goes on with what he's doing. Right. Um, and that may be part of like a greater problem or a shortcoming with the film that they don't really dig too deep into any of these characters or it may just be that joe is just kind of a minor character in the grand scheme of things but i feel like um there's kind of an unspoken chance for joe to be a better person in the future Mm -hmm. because i think he obviously valued this relationship that he had with his fiance like when he's about to go under in this experience in this experiment he calls her to tell her you know um, you know, I, you know, if anything ever happens to me, just know that I love you and so forth. And like the last thing that he watches before he goes on to the, the experiment is their engagement party. So he obviously cares. Like he's not, he's not indifferent, mm-hmm. but he just can't get over this juvenile obsession that he has. And he's perfectly willing to just play it off. Like, oh, it's just, it's just, I'm just being young and crazy. You know, like he, that he tries to explain it to her when she's walking out on him. He's like, it doesn't mean anything. And, you know, she says, I wish it did. Um, You know, so I think there's like, 
in the future for Joe, there's a chance for redemption, but there's nothing for him to really do in, within the boundaries of the movie. Like, I don't think, I don't think we would have been served well by him calling up his fiance and apologizing some more or something like that. Like he's, mm-hmm. he's, he's blown it. He's, mm-hmm. he's, you know, he's sunk his ship. Um, but I think there's a chance for him to, to fix that in the future. But I feel like it's just kind of beyond the scope of the movie. Mm-hmm. So then, are we to think that because he doesn't seek that redemption, that he's going to continue having these hallucinations? <laughs> That's a good question. I had not considered that. Is it that uh, he is not the protagonist of this story? It's actually about her. It is saving her from her marriage and life with him. Yeah, yeah. Like maybe, yeah. That maybe that is his redemption is just losing that relationship, so that he, like, you know, because I mean. It seems like he probably won't be doing that and he won't be recording women without their consent anymore after this. I mean, we don't know that for sure. Right. But uh but it it seems like this the end of that relationship struck him enough of a blow that maybe that maybe that counts for his redemptions like he's sadder but wiser. I don't know. Doesn't redemption have to be active though? Yeah, that's a good point. I don't know. Maybe I'm just thinking way <laughs> too hard about this movie. No, no. <laughs> I I I'm really kind of into this theory to tell you the truth. Like I, I, I'm, I'm kind of amused and horrified by the idea that everyone goes on with their lives and Joe's still seeing like his own sex tapes on every TV screen he passes, <laughs> you know, and just like, Oh God, what do I got to do? You know, like everyone else fixed it. Why can't I? He um, needs to track down those women and apologize. Right. See, this should, have been the, mm. this should have been the 2017 movie, obviously. Would, yes. would that have been the TV spin-off, him traveling? <laughs> yeah, the TV spin-off. <laughs> yeah. There were a lot of tapes, so. <laughs> mm-hmm. But in a kind of A-team quantum leap, you know, town right. to town, finding yeah, these praying girls. The, the next, <laughs> the, praying that the next tape will be the tape that stops. <laughs> yeah, <the> exactly. <laughs> <laughs> I think we have something new for you and Joshua to write. <laughs> I'm gonna pitch it to him. He'll, All he'll right. <laughs> All right, Matthew. Did you have any favorite moments from this movie? Uh, yes. Two two key things that stood out to me. Uh, the, the kid playing young Kiefer Sutherland. I don't know if he is a cousin or something because he was really good at that on the edge, hyper aggressive. You know, we saw him in Stand by Me, a slightly younger Kiefer Sutherland, but the kid was actually channeling him. I, I was quite impressed. <laughs> yeah. He was scary looking. Mm. Well, Kiefer Sutherland like, is scary Dallas. looking. <laughs> yeah, he That's really cool. gave it his all too. Like yeah. in the scene where he's in the tree and he's the you know Billy Mooney is about to uh, hit him with a rock and he's he just really brought it. I thought. Yeah. Um, and I have to call out the repeated use of "today is a good day to die," which is they're absolutely right that it is based on a. Oh, we got this wrong the other time. First Peoples, Native American, Indigenous. First Nation. First Nation, there we go. Um, <laughs> but the use of today is a good day to die. Um, a few years after this would become the Klingon catchphrase. So, so it's great to hear oh, it in yeah. any context. Yeah. Basically from... Of course you would like that. Um, DS9, it just becomes the, today is a good day to die. And then when <laughs> they don't, right. it's like, but today is not that day. <laughs> well nelson does say today is not a good day to die exactly yeah. <laughs> so okay. that tickled me all the way through okay mm. fantastic uh what about you mandy uh all things kevin bacon he was my favorite 
I was surprised because I expected Julia Roberts to be my favorite, but I really ended up liking Kevin Bacon, even though there were a lot of weird things that happened concerning his character, like climbing out of the window in a rock climbing harness when he got suspended. <laughs> what was that all about? Yeah. Um, but wait, yeah, I, wait, how should he climb out the window? Oh, or do you just mean he should have used the stairs? Um, well, yeah, he should have used the stairs. Okay. So, I mean, most people don't just have rock climbing, climbing harnesses around to climb out of windows. <laughs> it's all very strange. Yeah. As a drooling fan of this movie, I have tried for years to come up with some kind of symbolic <laughs> take on that. Like, cause there's that, there's that mural. And so he's like crawling out of the, the guy's right eye as he's uh-huh. coming down the wall. And I, I desperately want that to have some kind of deep symbolic meaning, but I've, I, I'm coming up with nothing. Every single time. <laughs> yeah. Well, if we ever meet uh, either Kevin Bacon or Joel Schumacher, we'll have to ask. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Um, but yeah, I think the reason I liked his character the most is because he is the one, as soon as he experiences the hallucination, he comes back and he says, no, we have to wake her up because something weird is happening. And I don't know why you guys didn't say anything about it. Mm-hmm. And characters who do that are always going to be at the top of my list. Yes. Um, and, and then the other thing I really liked was a quote by uh, Nelson, even though he was doing this like crazy hyper thing. Um, But when he's talking about why he wants to do this, he says philosophy failed, religion failed. So now it's up to the physical sciences. And that's a perspective I really like. I love that line. Mm. So there, there was some good stuff in this movie for sure. And it's, it's definitely gives you a lot to think about. Yeah. I really love Nelson too. Um, and he has my favorite line in the movie, which is die to be a hero someday if you want to, but don't but die to be a celebrity. Um, I just love that. And I love that, uh, that Labratio becomes kind of the center of like the first half of the movie or so, like Nelson is the center because he's the idea man and everyone's kind mm-hmm. of tagging along with what he's doing and, and he's, you know, forging this new frontier or whatever. But then when it, t- it comes time, uh, you know, for there to be some like some heart and emotion and some support for people to try to like urge them toward whatever redemption they want. Like that's when Labratio becomes the center of the movie and Nelson kind of gets sidelined um, and he's kind of the heart, even though he's he comes across as very cynical and and smart ass. You know, he's still he's still the heart. And I really dig that. I love that, those kind of characters. So what else did you really like from this movie? Besides the whole movie. <laughs> um, so I love that the the death of Billy Mahoney is actually a manifestation of a script writing in-joke. Because among screenwriters, there's this gag of like, how do you write a screenplay? Step one, you put a character in a tree. Step two, you throw rocks at them while they're in the tree. And step three, they find a way out of the tree. Um and obviously that doesn't go well for, for <laughs> but he does get down. From but the I trip. love, yeah, I love that they just took this screenwriting joke and said, nah, let's just do that as a plot point. <laughs> right. You know, okay. um, let's see what else, what else do I really like? I mean, I love all the, uh, I think I've, I mean, I, we talked about this before, but I love all of the, um, the gothic sensibility and all of the architecture and the, you know, the statues and the paintings that are surrounding them everywhere. Um, again, it lends that kind of otherworldly atmosphere, but I guess the, uh, 
the set designers, when they put this together, they wanted to surround the characters with imagery that symbolized humanity's struggle with death. Okay. You know, and you have, it's not, it's not omnipresent, but there are a couple really telling. So like that opening montage, you know, um, of like the morning light coming across all of like the, the statues of the, the skeletons and so forth. Um, there's a bit where at the end where Nelson is going to kill himself and uh, he's pushing the gurney into the room and then it, the camera moves aside to show this angel with rainwater falling down their face. So they look like they're weeping. I really, I really love that. Um, they're just little things, but I really like them. Good. Somebody needs to really like this movie. So <laughs> <laughs> might as well be me. Exactly. We like that you've taken pity on it. well you know and the thing for me with doing this show is i always find that even with the movies that i don't particularly like i enjoy talking about them and then i always find new ways to appreciate them once i've had the conversation Mm -hmm. so that's why i really love having super fans come on the show because they bring a different perspective than what i have and it oftentimes does sort of change my mind a little bit a little (laughs) yeah well, I mean, I found that, like, just in my life, some of my favorite movies in the world now are things that I hated when I first saw them. Mm-hmm. Because either they frustrated me or they unsettled me in some way or they had some kind of effect that I didn't like. And I was like, no, that was terrible. And then I go back for, you know, I feel compelled to revisit it. And then I go, oh, okay, I get it now. <laughs> Hmm. You know, and then I, and then after that, I, you know, it's one of my, they become one of my favorite movies. Right. Okay. Yeah, we heard from a couple of people who had seen it and found it genuinely quite terrifying. Both uh, Laura Esperi and Katie Sheru on Twitter talking about how it being much more scary than they expected or staying with okay. them afterwards. So I think certainly as we've talked all the way through, the visuals do have that impact of uh, being slightly off kilter in, enough to actually be scary. Right. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I, when I saw it in the theater, I, I saw it with my friend, uh, Sean, who was an, at the time a very outspoken atheist. I think he might still be. But um, afterwards, he was really kind of shook up because he was like, it, it had made him think about, uh, you know, what was beyond death and what if there was something? What if he was wrong? You mm. know? And it kind of stuck with him for a couple of days. Uh, but I think it faded with time. Okay. It's fine, <laughs> you know. Well, is there anything else that we need to talk about Flatliners? Because we've we've been talking about it longer than I expected us to, honestly. <laughs> no, I think I'm good. Um, so there is this remake that came out last year. Um, have either of you seen it? Do either of you want to see it? I still want to see it. Mm-hmm. I do not. Um, unless someone gives me a really good reason to see it, I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna take the time. And I will admit, like, I just looked at the photography and saw how flat it was. And I'm like, no, I don't care. (laughs) Well, it looks to me like what I think the difference, and this is based solely on the trailers, is the original one was more about the cinematography and the idea. And I think the second one is not meant to be that artsy. It's meant to be, let's actually look at what happens. And so I'm wondering if in the remake they actually have ghosts. I don't know. Yeah. We'll find out. If if find they out. do, and it actually does like a deeper cut into the subject matter, please tell me, and I will. I will see. Sure. It. But uh, as is, I don't. I don't really have any interest. 
All right. Well, I have one question for both of you. Okay. Would either of you ever flatline to find out what might be after death? <laughs> Absolutely not. Um, <laughs> just no. Uh, something I forgot to mention was uh, when I first saw this movie and there was, you know, like some press surrounding it, some talk radio show that I listened to at the time, and it's been so long that I can no longer remember what it was. But they had a guest on to talk about, not to talk specifically about flatliners, but about your chances of coming back from the dead um, via a defibrillator and, and so on. And uh, this guy was so mad at that movie. He was, he was just livid. Like his whole interview was just saying, this movie is irresponsible. Your chances of coming back after your heart's been deliberately stopped are next to nothing. None of these characters, like almost none of these characters would survive this. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I mean, uh, he just did not buy into the dramatic license at all. He was like, this is terrible. And I think that would stick with me way too much for me to be willing to risk it. That's fair. <laughs> I like that that's the bit that, that he didn't like of the film. <laughs> oh, yeah. The, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I hate I hate the, the damn it breathe, you know, pounding on the chest. <laughs> yeah. And then they're dead for a long time. And someone says, someone looks really sad for a while. And they go, no, I'm not giving up. And then they... They try again, and then the person comes back because mm-hmm. we've, we've we've waited it out. We've run out the <laughs> clock on the drama. Yeah, I hate that so much. And here's a movie that's just made up of just that for like half the runtime, mm-hmm. and I really love it. <laughs> um, I don't know because I do have. I don't know, if I had to try to express my feelings on it, I think if there is a life after death, you wouldn't get to experience it if you're doing this. Flatlining and then coming back. If you could still come back, you you are not going to experience whatever might be in the afterlife. So there is part of me that's like, it would be interesting to see, is it just black? Or do you see anything? But the risk is not worth it. But I suspect it would just be, it is just black. I don't know. I am curious, but I'm not sure I would. Oh, I don't know. (laughs) Catch me on a good day. (laughs) (laughs) One interesting piece of trivia about that is um, they drew, when they were writing the script, they drew really heavily on real life near death experiences to kind of inform their visuals. Mm. And one thing that I found interesting, and it was, they put it in the film is that people who have near death experiences as a result of accident or misfortune or whatever, they they commonly have those reports of a white light or a tunnel and loved ones speaking to them in this sense of, of uh, well-being and peace. And people who have uh, near-death experiences as a result of attempting suicide have these nightmare visions of, you know, tension and fear and, and, and terror. Um and they do that. They do that in the film when Nelson is going under by himself mm-hmm. as compared to all the other ones, mm. which are relatively benign at the time. His is very nightmarish and tense. And I thought that was a, that, I thought that was a nice touch. Definitely. Mm. How about you? Um, if we lived in a world where it was technology technologically possible to guarantee revival yes i probably would (laughs) so if there was no risk (laughs) exactly (laughs) but that risk is way too high Um, but it would be interesting to know for sure Hmm. i mean 
typically I believe that it would be black and there would be nothing. I am the libratio of the group. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so it would be interesting to find out is, is that real? Is that not real? But I, yeah. I don't want to know enough to find out permanently. Yeah. Fair. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, if you would like to join the conversation and tell us if you would flatline to find out what happens after death, you can use the hashtag PC Deprived on Twitter. You can find us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at Eloquent Gushing. You can email us at podcast at eloquentgushing.com. And don't forget, you can leave us a voice message at speakpipe.com slash eloquentgushing. You can find each of us on Twitter. I'm at Mandy Kay. And I'm at Matthew Vose. Daniel, th- thanks so much for joining us. This has been actually a, a really fascinating insight. So thank you so much. Oh, um, I'm so glad. Thank you so much for having me. Where can people find you? Uh, the best place to find me on the internet right now is on Twitter. I'm Daniel underscore Swenson, S-W-E-N-S-E-N. And there's a link to my author page in my bio. Awesome. Everyone go check it out. Pop Culture Deprived is 100% funded by listeners like you through Patreon. Anything you can give gives access to exclusive content and helps to support the network and develop new shows. To find out more, visit patreon.com slash eloquentgushing. And don't forget to keep up to the date with the latest news announcements by visiting our homepage eloquentgushing.com and subscribing to the weekly newsletter. And we'll be back next week with another episode of Pop Culturally Deprived where we'll talk about Bill and Ted's bogus journey. Until next time, I'm Mandy Kay. And you don't know jack butt white, needle white, jack off, limp wrist, cornhole, banana breath, bird, bird, face, kiss, brown nose, macho wimp, limp, fart face, tire merchant. What's the matter? Gonna cry? Come on, cry baby Davy. Cry, cry, cry. Face raptor, clicking. Son of a. Pop Culturally Deprived is an Eloquent Gushing production. For more information, go to eloquentgushing.com or find us on Twitter at Eloquent Gushing.